Uh, it's an absolute delight to be with you today, uh, and I say that without reserve. Uh, I've had the privilege these past two weeks, this week and last week, of spending time with the two churches that have been uh, bigger, uh, no two churches that have been bigger partners with Youth 13 over the years than this one and Soul Revival at Kiriwi. And uh, it's been a great pleasure to be there last weekend and, and preach and spend time with uh, God's people there. And to do that again today uh, with you guys is um, an astonishing privilege for me. So I want to say thank you uh, for the way that you partner with U13. And uh, what I'm praying is that you will be uh, as much blessed as every other church has been by having U13 just as we were at U, uh, down at Shell Harbour City. Uh, but more than that, today, uh, we might be able to serve you in a way that's going to uh, not just bring delight uh, in your relationship with God, but delight in your relationship with each other. Uh, your weekend is called Together, and that's what we're going to be thinking about. Uh, we've, uh, we're going to come from God's Word to, to think about these things, and uh, we're going to do some group work and different things, and hopefully the things I show you will be a real help to you. If you don't already have one, you're going to need one of these, this together book. So there's some people who have promised me they're going to run around with these if you don't have one. Uh, so please raise your hand if you need one and some delightful people are going to come and grab it. This will help you know where I'm going. This has the questions you're going to be answering in your group time later. This has the talk titles. This has space to take notes. Uh, this has place to write questions because we're going to have a Q&A tomorrow, uh, time permitting, and that way you can pummel me with whatever I've been unhelpful with, um, and you'll need to write those kind of things down. So keep your hands up, they're coming, they are moving around the room. And you also, a, a Bible is always helpful, um, helpful because if I'm going to preach from God's Word and I'm going to share from God's Word, but if I don't say what matches what's in God's Word, you shouldn't listen. So the, the, the basis of whether you should listen or not is not whether you're bored or whether you'd rather be somewhere else. But it's whether what you're hearing matches God's word. Now, if I don't say what matches God's word, then you have my permission to fall asleep. Go right ahead. Do anything other than listen to a false teacher. But if my words match what's in God's word, then you've got God speaking to you, not some guy you've never met before from the Year 13 program. Uh, so your Bibles will be very important as we go through uh, these sessions. And if you'd like to open to John chapter 13, that's where uh, we're going to be in the, this upper room discourse, John 13, a little bit about 15, 17. There, there is some screens, but God's word in front of you is always the most helpful. And let's pray as we consider these things together. Is the sound better now or are you guys still getting a lot of feedback? I can't tell. Yeah, it's all good? Radio. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us. Uh, thank you that you are good, that you are our God, and that we have every reason uh, to be thankful as we meet together today. Uh, please help me to speak the kinds of words that not just can be heard and understood, but that are useful and helpful and encouraging uh, to the saints of Richmond as we meet together here. And Father, would you work in us, all of us, what is pleasing to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so in John 13, 34 and 5, uh, that's where we are. And that's, yep, that's working. Okay, I've got this, the technology right. John 13, 34 and 35, let me read it to you. It says this. Uh, this is just to put you in the picture. Um, we're in what's called the upper room discourse. We're not being in a lower auditorium here, but this is the upper room. 
where Jesus went with his disciples. They'd just done the last supper stuff. He'd just done that washing people stuff. And he had just sent Judas out to betray him. So Judas is now gone. You've just got the 11 sitting around the table. And the moment he does that, the moment Judas is gone, Jesus now embarks on this long section of teaching where he tells them what's about to happen. And not just what's about to happen at the cross, but also what's going to happen after that and how they need to live and how they should behave and what they should be thinking about. So that's where we are as we come into John 13, 34 and 5. And so, in fact, I'll just read from 33 to give you the context. It says, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You'll look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. As a minister, I have the pleasure of conducting weddings and preparing couples for marriage. Uh, and while it's true that Aussie weddings can get way out of hand in terms of the money and time obsessing over everything, I remember for our wedding back in the day, it was you know way under 15,000, but a very small wedding today is 15,000, 30,000, 45,000, 60,000, $90,000, and on and on it goes. Uh, we spent a lot of money, we spent a lot of time over obsessing about it, but what's really terrific about it, besides all that obsession that goes on, is the special focus on preparing the bride to meet the groom. We say it's her day because there's a whole lot of time and money spent on preparing her to meet her groom, her dress, her hair, her makeup, her jewellery, her, I'm told this, her underwear, uh, her shoes. Everything is uniquely worked out for the occasion to maximise her beauty for him, to set her apart for him, to uniquely capture the attention, not of the room, but of the groom. Her trip to the church is carefully choreographed. Her entrance is staged and the music is specifically chosen for her walk down the aisle so that she can arrive at his side ready to give herself to him so that she'll look her best that she'll do her best as she's presented to the man who now has the most extraordinarily difficult job in all the world. To sacrifice his life in caring for both of them from now on. It's his job to sacrifice himself, no longer for just himself, but also for another. Not her job to do that, but it is his. And all that preparation work is, well... It helps him in saying yes, doesn't it? He's just so, you know, bamboozled by the beauty that he goes, of course. Wow, what an opportunity. Now, while our Australian cultural views on marriage differ greatly from the picture I've just painted, I realise that, but amongst Christians, this is how it should be, amongst Christians, Christian marries Christian, because the purified bride coming to the groom is the grand biblical image of the church being presented to Christ. That's what we're playing out in flesh, that theological reality of the church being presented to Christ. That's what makes the church so special. She is the bride of Christ. 
And I'm hoping you recognise that bride. Uh, Not only his bride, the church is also his body, through which life and eternal life now radiates out into all the world wherever the church lives for Jesus, with its doors open, welcoming people to come in. On the last day, on the great day of judgment, our Lord Jesus is going to return to claim something from this world. He's not going to claim just anyone. He's coming for his bride. He's coming to take his bride to himself that she might live with him eternally and he might care for her constantly. Just as he's already sacrificed his life for her, he now will take her to live with him And of course, that also means, on the flip side of that, he will bring judgment upon all who oppose her or who are not within her. And that's why, of course, all his followers gather in the church, for it's the church for whom he gave his life. The church he will return to save, and that's only as we as individuals come into the church that we find out who we are and what we're supposed to do as together we are seeking to live lives for Jesus. That looks familiar now, doesn't it? I'm hoping it does. That is your stuff, isn't it, from Richmond? And that is your church at St Peter's yet? Just checking, okay. Now this is all strange news to our ears, isn't it? It doesn't match what we're used to thinking. We're so used to being individuals and looking after number one and admiring ourselves in the mirror that any thought of admiring the bride of Christ, well, it's quite foreign to us, isn't it? Serving his bride, helping his bride, honouring his bride, respecting his bride, cheering his bride on like we do at a wedding is not something that we're used to doing for the church. Most Christians see ourselves as one with Christ by his spirit. Yes, I have a relationship with Jesus. I gave my life to Jesus. But most of us struggle to see the relevance of his bride, the church. Especially because we're so often disappointed by the church's failure to focus on us. It's our great disappointment most weeks. The church fails to bring maximum benefit to me personally, then I have every right to be upset and and leave it to her own devices. But we're wrong about that. And we're the ones in the wrong when we remember that Jesus is returning for his church. And it's his church that he is seeking to purify and prepare for that great day. And so if our attitude doesn't match that, then clearly we need to do something about this. For if the church is so important to Jesus that he gave his life to save her, then the church to us, who are its members, really needs to be a whole lot more important if we are going to call ourselves disciples of Jesus. And how we do it together, being disciples of Jesus together, now really becomes very, very important. So to proclaim Jesus as Lord means we need to also behave like he is our Lord And the most obvious and simple and visible ways to do it all revolve how we love one another within the church. And that's why Jesus gave this command the moment he was about to leave them. Because the moment he leaves them, he sends his spirit and sets up the church. And now they've got to know how to live in relation to one another there. Now, of course, 
there's a whole lot we could be thinking about here and the way we're going to be thinking about this across the weekend is under that title that you have on your booklets there it's called together and so basically what we're looking to do and what i'm hoping to help you look closely at as we do this is how god wants us to behave within the church i'm not going to spend much time at all on the theology of the church i'm hoping you can trust that where i've pointed you is the right spot but if you want to come back on me on that you're welcome to do so but we need to keep looking there but once that's settled it's now about well if that's true then what are we going to do about it how are we going to live so my hope is that you will come to admire the bride of christ that you would desire to be with and in his bride part of his bride and that as you leave here on sunday ready to well, ready to take your joyful place as his radiant bride together in the local church of St. Peter's Richmond where you normally meet. Along with uh, Wayne and your church leaders who've been putting and planning this weekend for a very long time, I want your church at Richmond to be the best that it can be. Not so that it gets compared to other local churches like we're in a newspaper magazine or something and we're, you know, uh, let's look at all the brides, the bridezillas, and work out which one we are. No, we're not doing that. This is not about being better than others or rubbishing them or envying them. It's not about that. No, no, no. But it's so that we'll have eyes only for Jesus. Eyes for him and what he thinks of us and what is for him and what he says to us about how we should be his people. That we'll be exclusively for him waiting with eyes fixed on him, looking to him for his return when he comes to take us as his church to be with him eternally. And that's the concern that we see Jesus has specifically as he says what he says here in John 13. So John 13, 34 and 5 again. He says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That if means you've got a choice. and also tells you what will happen if you don't. No one will know that we're his disciples. Uh, then a little while later in chapter 15, as he continues this discourse... Oh, hold on, I'm supposed to be pressing a button here. That's it. Uh, a little while later, as uh, having stressed the vital importance of remaining, of, being, of doing this, he then talks about remaining with him in the vine, and he says this in John 15, verse 10, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands, and I remain in his love. So if you listen, do my commands, so the first command there, love one another. If you do this, you'll remain in my love, just like my Father and I have this love, remain in that love. And I've told you to do this so that your joy, my joy might be in you and that your joy might be complete. Which again is an astonishing thought, isn't it? That following the commands of somebody else is going to give us complete joy. Well, it's true for the Christian when we're obeying the commands of Jesus. And here it is again, verse 12. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. That's not what we expect, is it? He did not say, love me as I have loved you. He's not saying that. But love each other as I have loved you. 
So once Jesus has died, risen and ascended, no longer will it be their love for Jesus that the disciples have been focused on as they've been walking along the road, they've been doing all these things with him. They've had eyes fixed only on him and they've actually been not very good to each other. And now he's saying, stop looking at me. My command to you, my new command to you, when I'm taken away, when I'm ascended and reigning on high and I'm going to return for you, when I'm doing that, no longer will be your love for me that's the visible display that you are my disciples. Now, it'll be your love for each other that will demonstrate to the world that you are my disciples. And so serious about this is Jesus that he just keeps on going in this upper room discourse. And he eventually concludes this long talk there with a long prayer in chapter 17. And in this prayer, he asks his heavenly father to protect his disciples as a group, but it's a group that's entirely defined by their response of obedience to his words. That's how you can tell. That's what he's saying, Father, protect those who obey my words. He tells them that they're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. And it's not just the original apostles Jesus was praying for. It's also us who believe in him through their message. And that's you and me right here. Here we are, all these centuries later, people from across the world. All who believe what we read in the New Testament from the apostles about Jesus. And what does Jesus pray for them and for us as well? He prays this, verse 21. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world might believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they, oh, no, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity. And having been brought to complete unity, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Friends, Jesus desires that you and I will be one in the same way that he is one with the Father. That amazing relationship he has with his heavenly Father. Complete unity. That doesn't mean uniformity. There's a difference between unity and uniformity. So he's not saying become the same person as if neither truly exists. But love and respect and care and have concern for one another in a never stopping, always ongoing, constantly accommodating kind of way that the world will find very unusual and certainly cannot do itself. And the members of the early church listened to Jesus, listened carefully to Jesus, and they put this into action. So we read in the book of Acts how they met in one another's homes and how they shared with one another in need and how they met publicly to hear the apostles teach. They loved one another in ways that surprised the community around them and surprised and also confused the local population. They just said, why are these people doing this? These people are so clearly different. Not in a weird way, but in a lovely way in a really sacrificially generous way. And they're looking on, they just don't get it. Others saw their love for one another and weren't confused or repulsed because it was so different, but others then wanted to join them because they saw what they had as a community and they wanted it too. Because of their lives of obedience to Jesus' command to love one another, the people were impacted all around them. All around them. So while the invitation was for others to come and follow Jesus, that was their invitation. Their lives of following Jesus, what that looks like in practice, was characterised by their love for one another, just as Jesus had commanded. 
In fact, so distinctive were the Christian lives of, of worship in that first and second century church uh, that historians and social commentators didn't just comment on it, they also wrote about it. There's this letter to a guy called Dionysius in uh, the second century. It says this of Christians. They share their table with all, but not their bed. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are short of everything, yet have plenty of all things. A wonderful balance, wonderfully balanced that is. It shows you the sexual mores of our world are no different to the old world, uh, which had all kinds of issues in that same way, but the Christians were different. Loving one another with non-sexual love, with chaste love. Caring for strangers. Uh, there's a warm, loving, supportive community. But it wasn't a closed community. That, it was open to the outside world and welcomed strangers in without taking advantage of them. And the world noticed, just as Jesus said they would. Uh, one uh, man who's written on this, Pastor Mark Devery, he puts it like this. Christian proclamation, Christian speaking, make the gospel audible to the world. But Christians living together in local congregations make the gospel visible. You say it again, it's really important. Christian proclamation makes the gospel audible to the world, but Christians living together in local congregations makes the gospel visible. That's interesting, isn't it? But it's not what we want to hear, is it? And it's not the way we're used to doing things. It's not the way our world does things. In our world, we do like to do things our own way, don't we? Uh, we don't like to sacrifice ourselves for anyone. Yet Jesus commands us to do that, to behave opposite to our nature and opposite to our culture. And that means, of course, that there's... You can't have just a personal relationship with Jesus that involves nobody else. You can't have an individualistic relationship with Jesus that does not include other people. That, no, that doesn't actually exist in the Bible. There's no such thing as a one-on-one -on -one relationship with Jesus. There's no such thing as a private faith. Jesus himself will have nothing of it. And Jesus prays that we won't do that, that we won't be individuals in how we love him, but rather that we'll be united together, showing our love for him by the way that we proactively love one another, face-to-face, person-to-person, fully engage with each other and never on our own. But still, we think we know better, don't we? And we like to act differently to this. Uh, we, want to ex we want to respond to Jesus on our own without anyone else getting in the way or without anyone else telling us what to do. I feel that same pull and tension. We've all got this issue. And especially because where we live is where we live in Australia, then that's exactly how we function. And in fact, if you go right back into our history, you can see this entrenched at every level of our society, right down in our criminal justice system. Uh, there's an old convict chapel in Port Arthur, in, uh, down in Tasmania. Has anyone been down to Tasmania and seen Port Arthur? You recognise this chapel? Yeah, okay, you'll know what I'm talking about here. Uh, and what they were doing there is that they, they realised that the prisoners, if they're going to get reformed and come back into society, need to have things better, and they thought they've got to have God, we've got to, have this, got to get them right with God. And so they put them into this chapel. Uh, and it was a chapel where, very specifically, they weren't supposed to interact with each other, where individual worship of God was what was enforced. So every one of those little seats there is actually an enclosed booth, both above and beyond, so all you can see is the preacher in front of you. And you can't see anyone else, you can't talk to them, you can't relate with anyone whatsoever. 
Talking was banned and it was punished. And even if you wanted to have eye contact with other prisoners, it was impossible because you're locked in that separate box and you're put in there and it's closed before the next person's put in theirs. So all you can see is the minister out front. The whole aim of the event was individual communion with God because this would help them, so it was thought. It would turn them into better men. Did it work? No, it didn't. The only convicts who left this confined part of the prison left in a six-foot box. The only way out. They'd go mad and die. And not even this fancy chapel or trying to relate with God in that way worked. It's no surprise, really, because they couldn't obey the commands of Jesus. How do you love one another if you're not even allowed to talk to one another? And they were stopped from doing it. They were stopped from doing it. And it, and it sounds like a bizarre experiment to stop from doing it, but individualism is how most of us, many of us, want to have our relationship with God. We want to express it our way and not have anyone else get in the way. And so, while we may not be doing Port Arthur in our church, I've not seen it, so you don't do that at St. Peter's, do you? Just checking. Took him down. Good call, Peter, good call. Well done. Still, we behave like that within the church, don't we? Uh, we'll skip it. We'll ignore it. We'll come when we want to come, leave when we want to leave. We want to say, I'm only interested in Jesus. Keep me away from other people and keep them away from me. So we can actually enter the church on any given week and deliberately avoid coming into the congregation and relating with people. And we all can do this, don't we? We can all manage to do this, to walk in as an individual, walk out as an individual and make sure nothing and no one comes into contact with us emotionally, relationally, physically, spiritually, visually, audibly. We can just silo ourselves. Even in a building where our seating makes it impossible for us not to look at each other, we can still gravitate to the back rows and make sure we've got a seat in between each other ourselves when we sit down. Notice how we do this? We do it automatically. It's automatic. And we go, well, that's just me protecting my space. What? We're in church now. We're supposed to be loving each other. Very hard to do that when we start off like this, with a mindset like this. And then, of course, not only do we gravitate to the back rows and shuffle apart, try not to be seen or noticed by others, we also have in the back of our mind, how fast can I leave? Who can I avoid? Oh, dang, they walked in, there they are. But now I have to work out how to avoid them. How little can I interact? How much can I hide? How swiftly can I be out of here? You know, I'm, I'm happy to come. I'm even possibly willing to give a little bit of money jingling around at the bottom of my purse, but don't ask me to interact with other people or to do things for them. Now, that's the nature that's going on in us doesn't matter who we are, that's always sitting in there. Some of us manage to push that down a little bit better than others. And others sometimes it flares back up again. But it's always there. And it's just being human. And when we've been hurt in past relationships, it's a mindset that it's fully understandable. And you can think, yeah, of course this person behaves that way. And we should have empathy for them and sympathy with them. But we've got to remember that that's not what Jesus commanded for his followers. And it's certainly not what he prayed for. He prayed against that. And he commanded us to do opposite to that. And so regardless of our personal preferences, 
unity in the body of Christ, it leaves no room for individualism. And we've got to work out how to repent from that and do something different. But still, we probably should ask the question, why? Why does he want us to do it differently to what is our normal nature? Why does he want us to be so uncomfortable when we're very happy being comfortable? I don't know about you, but I'm pretty dedicated to my own comfort. I take tablets so I don't feel sick. I choose food that's going to be comfort food rather than food that's going to make me get ugh. I'm going to listen to music that I like. I'm all about my comfort. I'll even drive a car and pick a car based on if that seat's going to suit my back. So we're pretty invested in our own comfort, or at least I am, and maybe I'm just talking for myself right now, I'm not sure. But Jesus is calling me and all of us to do something different. But why? Well, again, it's because it's just not about me as an individual. It's not about you as an individual. Jesus wants us in the church together because that's how the gospel becomes visible to the world. The only way the world is going to see where Jesus is and what he's doing so they might hear and know what the gospel is if they can find it. Now, the world is so fixated on our eyes and what we see with our eyes, they've got to be able to see it. And they can see the gospel played out whenever the people of God are meeting together and meeting Jesus' way. That's exactly what he said in John 13, 15, 17, wasn't it? The church is the gospel made visible. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is the Lord and Saviour of the world, becomes visible to the world through the church. And we do understand this, don't we? We understand how this works, the logic of it. It makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if, if we want to see marriage vows happen, then we need to watch a marriage in action. If we want to see... Actually, not just the marriage service. Go and watch the married couple afterwards and you'll see those marriage vows really in action now for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, and sickness and in health. See what it really likes you. But you've got to keep watching for it, don't you? If you want to see the government education policy, we need to go in a classroom and watch a teacher teach some students. If we want to see justice being done, we've got to go and sit in a court somewhere and watch it and then see it play out through the justice system and the proceedings. If we want to see what retail economics looks like, then we need to go to a shopping centre like one of the ones around here and watch the consumers and how everything transacts and how it happens. And In each case, the results of what we're seeing demonstrate the truth of the thing that we're looking for. They show us what it is. If we want to see the truth of the wind, we need to watch the trees and the flowers move. If we want to see the truth of electricity, we need to look at a light, don't do it right now, and, and watch it go on and off. And if we want to see the truth of the gospel, the only place in all the world that we can possibly look is the church. Because the church is the gospel made visible in our world. God doesn't come out on a big stage once a year and put on a miracle show so that people go, oh, there he is, let's go follow him. No, he does something way more riskier than that, way harder than that, way more packed full of grace and way more public and spread throughout the world than that. More daring, it's preposterous even. He proves himself and displays the gospel through his church. Through people, little old people like you and me. And he does it every day. And he does it every week as his people gather. And he's been doing it at your church now. 208 years, I think it is. Living lives for Jesus. And the gospel has been visible in Richmond for people to see for that long. 
It was way back in 1810 that somebody dreamed up the idea of St. Peter's Richmond. And 208 years later, it's now you. You are St. Peter's Richmond in the current moment, the current generation. And as you gather there and make sure it functions week by week. And that happens because you're faithful, praise God. But praise God that it happens at all because without him empowering us, without him working in us by his spirit, without him moving to gather us and then giving us his words that shape how we gather, well, it wouldn't be visible at all. If you want to thank anyone for what you have in your church, it's Jesus we should be constantly thanking and honouring for what he does. Because remember, not only did he pray for it in John 17, he then walked out of that room and died to pay for it. And not only did he pray for it and then pay for it, he then rose again as its bridegroom to constantly love and intercede for it on our behalf until he comes to collect us and take us to be with him eternally. So while we wait, what are we doing? While we wait, what are we going to do? That's the question. How are we going to believe and how are we going to behave in regards to Jesus' command and what he says to his disciples to do while we wait for his return? That's the question. What's it going to look like in practice? What should love for each other look like in Richmond? The kind of love that shows everyone who can see in that local area what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ. What should that love look like? Now, I have no idea. I I was the expert on Shell Harbour City for 12 years. So I know what it looks like there. And it has all kinds of things to do with how you treat the beach. You guys don't have a beach. No, you've got a river. It's a lovely river. So it's going to look different somehow in your community. Now, I don't know how, but you do. You're the experts on your community. You're the experts on what the local people think and recognise and worship, whether they should or shouldn't. You know what that looks like. So you are the disciples of Christ who have his word, and you are the people who live in that area, and you bring those two things together, and that's what it should look like, so that anyone who looks at your church will see the gospel played out visibly. So... I'm about to shut my mouth and let you guys do some talking to each other as you think this through. I'm going to pray in a moment, then we're going to break into some discussion groups around tables six and seven, around these tables. And uh, there's a little study that's there in your booklet, and you're going to be given a passage. And the passage is one of the one another passages from the New Testament. See, Jesus didn't just give that command, you've got to love one another as I have loved you. And they go, thanks very much, but what on earth does that mean? What does that look like? Does that mean we should go get ourselves nailed to crosses because Jesus, that's how you loved us? No, he then gives them the rest of the New Testament and the rest of the New Testament is full of all these little one another passages. And in each of these one another passages it puts flesh and bones and actions and words and attitudes to what it looks like for his people to love one another. So we're going to meet around these tables and you're going to uh, share with each other and discuss what they look like. And then in the next session we're going to talk about what you found. That's the basic plan from here and see what it looks like to put flesh and blood on how it is to live as disciples of Christ in Richmond. So I'm going to pray, and pray for you, and then we'll go into that. That's what we're about to do. Uh, Heavenly Father, you teach us in your word that the church is the gospel made visible. Uh, Therefore, let us be this church. Let us be those who consider 
how we might spur one another on to love, toward love and good deeds as we consider your word. Uh, let us not be those who give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage each other using your word and all the more as we see the day of Christ's return approaching. And may you work in your people, your saints here as we meet, as we think about this together, to equip us with everything good for doing your will. And Father, may you work in us what's pleasing to you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.